Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 178 of the show, and it's Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024, as I record this. No, it isn't. This is episode 178 of the show, and it's Monday, January the 29th, 2024, as I record this. The big news this week is that my book, From Your Head to Their Hands, is now ready. You can find it at swordschool.shop. Let me read you the blurb. From Your Head to Their Hands. How to Write, Publish, and Market Training Manuals for Historical Martial Artists. The blurb begins with a quote, Our favourite writer of instructional manuals, end quote, from Neil Stevenson from his foreword to sword fighting for writers, game designers, and martial artists. The blurb continues, Guy Windsor, that's me, Guy Windsor's historical martial arts training manuals are legendary. His first was published in 2004, and he's been producing them ever since. They generate about half his income, so he is expert in writing, publishing, and marketing books for historical martial artists, and in this book, he'll teach you how to do it. The goal of training manuals is to teach skills. This one will teach you how to write well, how to plan your book or write without a plan, how to get reader feedback as you go, how to avoid procrastination and imposter syndrome, what tools to use, how to write without destroying your body, how to incorporate photos and videos, how to edit your work, what should be outsourced, how to publish, commercial, indie, or something else, what metadata you need and how to create it, how to choose your publishing platform, how to market your book, how to find your readers, how to launch, everything you need to know about copyright and piracy, and the best book marketing strategy of all time. Also included, Guy's article, Show Your Work, How to Communicate Your Historical Martial Arts Research with the Historical Martial Arts Community. If you've ever wanted to write a training manual for historical martial arts or anything else, this book will show you how to do it. Buy it, read it, and get writing. So, that's the end of the blurb. And I'm off to the studio on Thursday to record the audiobook. I normally record this intro and outro on the Wednesday or Thursday, but I have a busy week this week. And Thursday is busy because I'm going to spend the whole time in Punch Studios here in Ipswich recording the audiobook for From Your Head to Their Hands. Now, the section Show Your Work is, I think, necessary for the historical martial arts community as a whole. We need better ways of presenting our research. So I've made that section of the book free, and it is a gigantic chunk, it's like 7,000 words or something, as a blog post at guywindsor.net. So you can go there, it's the latest blog post on the blog, so go to guywindsor.net and you can have a read of it there. And I would very much like it if you shared it with your friends, because I really think the way that we present the physical practice that we do as an academic pursuit could really use some work. And this is my approach for how that could be improved. So go to guywindsor.net and read that blog post if you'd like, and definitely go to swordschool.shop and buy the book, because I have bills to pay. Thank you very much. Now, other book news. From Medieval Manuscript to Modern Practice, The Wrestling Techniques of Fiore de Liberi is coming along beautifully. I expect to see the first print proof in a week or so. 
Um, I'll be producing the book as a full color hardback, a regular paperback, so black and white interior, and an ebook, but I will not be doing an audiobook for it because it just doesn't make sense uh, in the context because so much of it is about the pictures and honestly, you do not want to listen to me reading Italian out loud. So you can expect that book in the beginning of March. Now, update on my caffeine detox for the purpose of improving sleep. It's going well in that it's providing actionable data, but it's not the data I was hoping for. So having established a baseline of no alcohol and no caffeine, I found that it improved sleep marginally and reintroducing my usual morning coffee made no difference at all that I could find. Alcohol was much worse. So you know, if I drink more than a little bit in the evening, it always has a very big impact on my sleep, whereas caffeine in the morning doesn't seem to do, very, doesn't seem to do anything. So I'm still not sleeping as well or as long as I'd like, um, but we can at least write caffeine off as a cause of that. Sleep-wise, I'm having a think about what else I can do to improve things. Um, so I will be restoring my morning coffee on most days, but I won't be drinking caffeinated coffee every day. Um, I want at least one day a week where I have no caffeine at all, just on principle. Um, you may ask, why not cut it out altogether then? I have two reasons. Firstly, I like tea and coffee, and if there's no adverse effects, there's no reason not to enjoy them. And secondly, there are significant health benefits associated with both tea and coffee, and given that they're not impacting sleep at the dosage and timings I'm using them, it makes no sense to avoid them. So that's where we are on the caffeine front. And just a reminder, uh, if you are Within striking distance of Helsinki in February, I am teaching a Polans seminar, so Fiori, Polans stuff, Spears, Polaxes, that kind of thing, on February the 17th, that's Saturday, February the 17th, at the Sal in Yakomaki in Helsinki. So um, you can find that seminar details uh, in the show notes, and you can find it in the newsletter this week. Um, there's no sense me reading you out a great long link because you're not going to type it into your phone. I know that not least because you're probably driving at the moment. So I hope I will see at least some of you in Helsinki. And without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with Dr. James Dilley, who is an archaeologist and craftsman specializing in prehistoric technologies such as flint napping and casting bronze weaponry. He is the founder of Ancient Craft, a company that provides expertise and experiences to individuals and educational institutions. Can confirm, casting a bronze sword is really good fun. I did that with James a little while ago. There's blog posts about it. Um, and he has three archaeology degrees, which seems like an awful lot. He has a BSc exploring polished stone axes, an MA focusing on bone flintknapping hammers, and a PhD from the University of Southampton on upper Paleolithic hunting technology. So if you get lost in the woods with just a stone, James is clearly your man. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. So, James, welcome to the show. Hello, Guy. Um, just to orient everybody, uh, whereabouts in the world are you? So I am in Norfolk, England. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I live in Suffolk. Us in Suffolk have, you know, we're convinced that everyone in Norfolk has like six toes on each foot. Oh, but and... I'm not actually from Norfolk I'm from <laughs> at the moment, but uh, okay. I'm from North Hertfordshire originally. Okay, yeah, and, and, and the people in Suffolk have such a narrow worldview that they don't even have an opinion about people from that far away. <laughs> yeah, we're, we have pretty neutral accents there. We're just sort yeah. of north of London. Yeah. Um, so what drew you to Norfolk? 
well, we've been living in Norfolk since February this year, uh, and we moved for workshop availability that you were able to see. Because, like many young people, trying to live in the southeast is uh, particularly uh, tricky and expensive at the moment. And uh, for what we do, we need uh, the kind of workshop space uh, to actually run the business. Um, so uh, we both like Norfolk um, and it, it just is a little more affordable, uh, but not too far from home because you know we could go all the way up to Scotland or North Wales and uh, things would be more affordable, but uh, it would be far from anywhere. Not that North Norfolk isn't far from anywhere. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. You're, you're about 20 minutes outside uh, Norwich itself, which is a reasonable sized town and it has good rail connections. So, you know. Yeah, not this um, time of year. <laughs> no true. Uh, there's, there's this weird thing in Britain how everything stops working in winter. It's almost just like winter is a surprise that we've never seen winter before. We have no idea what to do with it. You moved to Norfolk because you could find a workshop space that actually you could afford. I can yeah, sympathise with that. I mean, I, that, when I was yeah. when I was living in Helsinki, my sal was on the edge of town in a rather dodgy neighbourhood called Yakomaki because yeah, could afford it. Um, yeah. So. You moved there in February this year. Um, how did you get into prehistoric crafts? So I got into prehistoric crafts um, as a kid. And like most young kids, loved making things, liked history, uh, and particularly liked uh, the ancient Egyptians in school and dead bodies because kids are grim and kids are morbid and they like dead oh, things yeah. and they like poking the dead things. So uh, I was very much within that mold. Uh, and I've got quite a practical family, no family in archaeology or history in any way, but very practical. So it would be always encouraging of making things and picking up sticks and stones and would be frequently taken on walks with my grandfather who made missile boxes after the war. Uh, and would, made, I'm sorry, he made missile boxes? Yeah. Boxes after for missiles? Yep. So they had to be pretty secure and stable, no rattling. Oh, right. So actually, like, like for the military, so they could store yep. their missiles and... See, I, I never really thought of that as a job. I mean, how do you get into making missile boxes? Well, I, I guess you start as uh, a wood chopper and then you get uh, you level up to sort of, a, I guess, a carpenter, then a cabinet maker. And if you're good enough to make pretty secure cabinets, then you can make boxes that don't rattle too much. <laughs> that's... that's, that's, that's I, I've never heard of missile box maker as a profession but i guess somebody has to make them i mean because there they are yeah huh. yeah yeah okay yeah. I, I think i i don't think that was his main profession for too long um uh, and as i said it was it was after the war um but uh, he then went back into cabinet making so it was very very practical um okay. and would often encourage walks and picking up sticks and stones and pointing out you know, the uses of different trees and that sort of thing. So again, like most young kids had a, a very much encouraged collection of sticks uh, and stones. Um, and as I started to learn more about history in school, that practical interest of making things and making the objects from the time periods you're learning about, I guess, starts to come in uh, and creep in. Um, and I think I had mostly an interest in ancient Egypt. Again, you know, trips to the British Museum were, were not too difficult being from North Hertfordshire and again you know they've got mummies and dead bodies there mm. but I was not put off ancient Egypt I think I had you know I've, I've not had well many mature thoughts in my life but uh, a mature thought sort of age seven 
um, that you know you watch loads of these Egyptology documentaries, and quite understandably, any of these excellent new tombs and other finds that have been found have been opened by Egyptian officials. Quite understandably, right. um, the days of English gentlemen going over to Egypt or other places around the world and opening tombs and bringing them back for a baying audience to watch the unwrapping have thankfully long since gone. Um, so I guess partly because of that um, and just for the distance uh, that Egypt was, became interested in local history of sort of the same sort of time, uh, which for Britain puts it in prehistory uh, and yeah. again for the area that uh, we are in the southeast although much of britain has a huge amount of prehistoric archaeology there's a lot in the area um and with the likes of time team um which uh, feels like a uh well i guess audiences in, in britain and possibly europe um time team is a bit of a historical archaeological cultural phenomenon that people still talk about yeah, at great lengths yeah, it's like a reality TV show where a bunch of archaeologists sort of descend on this place and they start doing archaeology and trying to figure out what happened there and then they go away again. It's it's a great, yeah. great show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, within three days, uh, they would excavate and sort of execute right. this Which is insane. operation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally insane. <laughs> um, but it has been off, off the television for, well, it must be 15 years now. Um, so it's been off for a long, long time, but it's still very much cemented within the archaeological world even today. So that's just how sure. much of an impact it had and uh, drew that many people. And you know, I was one of them um, as a young kid. And I seem to distantly remember um, someone showing flint mapping, making stone tools on TV. And with TV as it is, any complex or difficult skill or process is shown in a matter of moments yeah. uh, with no outtakes or problems and as a nine ten year old seeing that i i could immediately pick up on that and think yeah i can do that straight away you know there's plenty of well, flint of around here we find it look very difficult big lumps yeah exactly you just, you know, you just bang, the, the, bang the stones together and there's an arrowhead well Perfect. see it well, even with that description you you could be a very experienced flint mapper uh based on my 10-year-old approach yeah. to, well, that's, that's surely all it is. Um, and rushed out into the garden, found the most knackered, frozen piece of flint you could ever imagine, and bashed it, uh, and got some, well, to say flakes would be generous, uh, some chunks, um, but for some reason persisted with it and, and carried on. Um, and through school and college, it was just something I, I did and practiced and would often be found in local nearby fields looking for larger, fresh pieces of flint. And once they became exhausted, would then have to try and find a nearby quarry and things started to get a bit more serious at that point. <laughs> so, so you were basically, you were napping flint the way most kids draw. Like just, yeah. you just did it all the time just because you liked doing it. And eventually got yeah. quite good at it because you did it a lot. Yeah, uh, simply. So, were there any there. resources for for actual instruction back then? Because YouTube didn't exist yet. No, no, it didn't. Um, I think there was only really books that would be about prehistory and archaeology, but not really books that were focused on flint napping. And there may have been one or two that, that I wasn't aware of. Mm but certainly not to the same level we have today. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a very nuanced skill. 
-hmm. So, like, you know, you must have got the idea from somewhere of how to use uh, one of those flaking tools where you kind of push the flakes off the flint um, yeah, rather than I, I, whacking them. I mean, how, how, how did you... How did you develop the skill set? Well, I think that's that's come from a mi mixture of watching these very occasional documentaries that would have a segment on flint mapping or reading in one of these more generalised archaeology or prehistory books um, that you know that they used a this or they did a that uh, you know, and I'm sure you've yeah. come across the same with weapons and armour from across time that. You know, if, if whoever's writing about it isn't particularly comfortable with it, it'll be a, they did this. So is that yeah. true? Uh, that hasn't really expanded on it very much. That suggests, a, a, you know, we'll gloss over that section. We'll just mention it. Um, and, and that's an awful lot of what was available. So it's very limited. And I'm sure if there were greater resources or uh, there was more tuition in, in any way available, it would have been a far quicker journey for me um, because I, I only got my first hand axe which is a uh, a butchery tool it's sort of a lens shaped tool after about three or four years practice uh, and when people come on flint napping workshops with me after just a weekend they're generally at the point where they're getting a fairly competent understanding perhaps with minor tuition but they're starting to read the process understand the rock more independently and that's within a matter of hours not, not years or yeah. months uh, so, so that trial and so error takes much yeah. much longer so what you're saying is basically having a teacher who knows what they're doing to show you stuff massively speeds up the learning process yeah yeah that, that's that's <laughs> not not surprising it works the same in historical martial arts um but i think like how much trial and error we had to do back in the 90s because access to the sources was almost non-existent access to decent weapons was almost non-existent and yeah i mean people talk about the good old days but they really weren't <laughs> yeah much yeah, much yeah. easier to show up and get taught yeah um, often the good old days are seen with uh, rose tinted spectacles so regardless of what yeah. the subject is um, but I, I guess ancient craft became a thing when I was about 16 because my, my dad, who is, works in IT um, and uh, uh, various computer systems, helped me create my, my website, Ancient Craft, which was intended more of a sort of hobby show. This is who I am. This is what I do. But quite quickly started to get uh, inquiries from museums or individuals who wanted oh, really? replicas of the pictures that they were seeing. So this was, but this was, was back in the relatively early days of the internet. What what sort of year are we talking about? Uh, Two thousand nine, I think. Oh really? Yeah. Good God, yeah. you're like twelve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thirty one, guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I turned look fifty at all this last week. On my head. <laughs> yeah, honestly, honestly, it it did that did skew my my perception of your age a little bit. So yeah, I, I assumed you were older. Wow. So so your first website came up in like two thousand nine yeah huh okay so your dad helps you to put the website together and i guess it's one of those things where it's so niche it's so rare that there weren't there wasn't really much in the way of competition so anyone Not, googling for like flint napping or whatever you're likely to come up quite quick yeah and huh. the, and that's really the case today as well the the uptake of flint nappers and bronze casters for prehistoric bronze is extremely extremely low just because of the sheer amount of dedication and practice required um, and I, I suppose that the best time to learn would probably be when you're um, a kid without 
dependence or a job that yeah, yeah. You, know, you could put as much time as you want into it um that you is much much harder in later life so i guess there's more time required for the trial and error and the learning independently um that was enabled because i i was a kid um but i guess on the other hand in uh, today um you can skip around some of that with with some guidance and tuition so it, it balances out i'm, I'm sure I, I would say it's it's more something that does require dedication um like, like any skill or craft or, or martial practice um uh, that determination and focus um and self-discipline um that there are so again with with crafts or various arts that there are so many consistent character traits required um, mm. and and some are suited to that some are not but they're better suited to other things and it's as simple as that it's funny i you know i used to be a cabinet maker back in the 90s and it didn't suit me as a profession at all. Um, I was basically, mis I mean, I like woodwork. Um, I love woodwork. I mean, I do quite a lot of woodwork even now. But as a job, it was just not right for me. But teaching historical martial arts phew, went absolutely fantastically. Suits me down to the ground. And what you're saying about, you know, starting young is, I mean, it is possible to be in your, I don't know, late 40s and have, three children and start a historical martial arts school for a living. Um, but I turned professional as a historical martial artist when I was 27 and no kids. And that made everything much easier because it, there just wasn't the, there wasn't the requirement to actually make any money. And there wasn't, I wasn't worried about being able to feed my children. I was only worried about, you know, being able to feed myself and, <laughs> You know, I have friends who were very charitably shoved in and down my throat every now and then when the money was tight. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so you went from school straight into university to do polished stone axes. I mean, I'm I'm quite surprised that you could study ax, stone axes at university. What's going on? Yeah. So um, through so the, my co the college that I went to in Cambridge um, actually offered archaeology as an a-level um okay. it's one of the handful of places that did but i had already done my gcse archaeology in year nine um at uh at secondary school and the reason i did that um was because that was the last year that they were offering archaeology as a gcse so i would have been uh, so you took it two years early yeah i think that would be 14 or 15 yeah you mean 14 in terms of age yeah something like that yeah um because my daughter's immediately in year 10 and she's turning 15 oh, there we go. Yeah. And, she, and she's doing her, her GCSEs next year in year 11. So yeah, you were, you were two full years ahead of... So so they actually, your school let you do an archaeology GCSE two years early. So they must have recognized that you were seriously interested in this subject. Um, well, not so much the school. They, they facilitated the examination. Actually, my, it was my parents and my dad who managed to... Um, find a tutor who would be able to guide me and steward me um okay. via the examining body sort of an open university type system and um you know they're both you know throughout my entire journey my parents have been incredibly supportive throughout but you know they were able to find that um because okay. my interest level they felt could be focused and guided by going through that examination process and it absolutely was and for a 14 year old it, it was it was tough um because you know your friends were going out to play football and i had a module or homework or something to complete yeah. um 
And as soon as I finished it, um, you know, Dad turned around and said, "Well, do you want to do the A level?" And immediately thought, "Oh God, why do I? Why on earth do I want to put myself through that again?" Um, and but for some reason, I did, um, and I yeah did that in yeah the following year. Um, so you did your A level in in archaeology the year after you did your GCSE. So you took that A level three years earlier than most kids do their A levels. Yeah. Okay. That's. But that that was grueling. A level, <laughs> doing A levels way harder. Was, yeah, were tougher than the undergraduate and the masters. I mean, similar level with the PhD, but honestly, grim and tough are A levels. Uh, yeah. I do feel sorry for people going through them. My my um, eldest kid is just starting hers now, and she's yeah. already revising like a maniac. Full sympathy, honestly. They are <laughs> really, really tough. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, that was a real struggle. Um, but again, uh, school was able to facilitate it um, and then went to uni at Southampton to do an undergraduate in archaeology, a, a BSc in archaeology. I imagine, um, okay, we, you have a kid applying to do an archaeology degree and they got their GCSE in archaeology two years early because the archaeology GCSE was ending. And then they got the A-level the next year, right? It should be a two-year course and you did it in a year, like three years earlier than you should have had. I don't think your application was was one they struggled to grant. I mean, like yeah, I mean, there was a funny story about, and it, it, it sort of is a story that comes in a full circle um, because when I went for the interviews at Southampton, and I chose Southampton because at the time I was very, very interested in maritime archaeology and uh, scuba dive into some of the lost um, prehistoric landscape off the coast of Britain. Uh, less so now, still interested in scuba diving, but at the time that's that's why we. Uh, Southampton uh, was where I wanted to be um, and in the open day and interviews each of the students went in for a chat and an interview with a different member of staff and each member of staff had an archaeological object that each student then had to describe and talk about from an archaeological mm -hmm. point of view and I guess that was the main interview and speaking to people afterwards there were pieces of bone pottery wood metal you name it and for my um interviewer um fraser he put a stone axe in front of me oh my god thank goodness <laughs> if it was a lump of wood it would be yes that that sir that is organic <laughs> that would have been just about it um but uh yeah i was able to tell him how it was made how long it took to make how old it probably was whereabouts in britain it probably came from etc etc and at the end it right. was a you can come to this university if you wish. Just sign on this dotted line here. Um, and that, that, was, that was me at Southampton. And within the first year, I was helping to teach. Not paid. Looking back on it, that was perhaps no. the fault. <laughs> I, I should have thought, oh, yeah, actually, I should be paid for doing this. Um, but, yeah, was thrown into it quite quickly. Um, but, uh, yeah, and ancient crafts all continued and, and really became more of a full-time job from master's. Um, and doing a full-time PhD alongside an emerging full-time business is not a good idea. Would not no, I, recommend. Yeah, I, I, my, comp my school had been going for 16 years before I did a PhD. Everything yeah. was nicely established. I didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, uh, okay, so, it's scary. Yeah, I, it's just a huge amount of work. Um, so you, when you graduated with your MA, you decided you're going to turn professional. 
right? Why have your own company sort of making stuff and showing other people how to make stuff rather than get a job in university? Because I, I imagine you wouldn't have too much difficulty finding a post at university. Yeah, so uh, going through the process of university and completing the PhD, um, you know, family questions about you know what kind of jobs you you're you going to look for were frequently there, but in academia and in archaeology, particularly in universities, there just ain't many jobs out there, and they are extremely competitive um, okay. and are generally offered in house. I mean, they have to be opened just from a legal point of view, but they're generally just offered in house. Um, but certainly going through the master's and the PhD, you could see the pressure that's put on um, staff and uh, researchers these days. It, it's, I do really, really feel for them. The, the workload that they have and the sheer amount of students that they have to support and work with. And generally, they're, they're providing support and assistance that goes beyond their professional duty. You know, they're, they're providing yeah. emotional support that, you know, they should not have to. Um, and whenever I'd be able to talk to them more informally, they ju were just constantly drained and knackered. And then get round to the summer, and it's like, okay, well, the university expects you to do research now and publish papers. And so, well, you guys aren't getting a break at no. all in any way, shape, or form. Um, and there aren't many jobs in museums. Um, but I did have this hobby business that was gaining a lot of traction and using social media when social media wasn't quite as horrific as it is today um, it, it was a good opportunity to engage with uh, personnel in the heritage world or different museums to start to gain more traction um, and was starting to do more tv work um, because there are so few people who do uh, any kind of skills or demonstrations like this and far fewer well none really certainly for prehistoric craft that have an academic background do the these TV companies pay you? Oh yeah, it's funny because they can't. BBC contacted me not long after I moved here, um, wanting my help with some program, history, military sort of stuff. And I said, yeah, certainly, and I quoted them my day rate, and I never heard back. <laughs> yeah, like... and we, we we get that reason. Well, le less so these days, but um, but you, we do get the very occasional. Oh well. You know, we'd like you to do this and this, a lot of work, um, and won't talk about a fee, and you'll go back to them, and, you know, as you say, well, this is this is my day rate, and you'll either not hear back, or even more amusingly, you'll hear back to, oh, we don't actually have a budget, and a good friend of my, Graham Taylor, who does historical pottery from prehistory to later, um, he, he always comes back with the line of, oh, well, if you don't pay the cameraman or the director for the day, then you can pay me. And, you know, funnily enough, oh, well, we couldn't do that. And so, well, what do you expect? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've been pretty lucky with some of the, the, the TV stuff. I've never really had, had a problem. I've just been quite firm. Um, yeah. But I know colleagues, and particularly female colleagues, have had real trouble before. And I, I guess that is – it's changing and improving. And even in the short time that I've interacted with TV and media, I've seen it improve. Um, but you know there, there are still various levels that are a bit bit tricky. <laughs> sure. Um, okay. So basically, your company produces objects that people can buy and produces experiences that people can have, like casting a bronze sword, which I did with you a few weeks ago. Um, but you also like have a sort of broader kind of educational mandate where you you want 
people who are interested in such things to learn whatever they want to know about prehistoric stuff, right? So what do you wish the general public understood about prehistoric craft? So, yeah, I guess our mission is to make prehistory accessible, the headline mission statement. Um, And that comes through a whole variety of different outlets, whether it be, as you mentioned, experience days, whether it be just owning an object that you you have on your mantelpiece, um, whether it's watching YouTube videos that we make, whether it's actually doing stuff um, on TV or even doing uh, a podcast like this. Uh, prehistory and archaeology and particularly the craft side of it is a really good leveler uh, and it's one that has so many different routes and different crafts and opportunities that there's almost always something to suit everyone and regardless of what you think about you know I've oh I've got rubbish hand-eye coordination I'm not strong I can't break rocks even with you know take flint napping it's not a craft that requires strength at all and the amount no. of times that people will be on a workshop and they'll say, oh, you know, I, my hand-eye coordination is really poor. That's fine, because we're going to just spend the first few hours just hitting the rock. I don't want to worry about making anything. I just want you to hit the rock continually because you'll enjoy it. You'll get more out of it. You might not seem it, breaking rocks, um, sort of French Yeah, it's normally a punishment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you will just start to build up that foundation layer that will mean that the later stages will seem much more achievable. And whether it be pottery, bronze casting, basketry making, you name it, there are so many different skills out there that have a bit of something for everyone. And even if it's not the purely practical side of it, that desire to understand where we came from and our own history is very much a romantic pursuit that is very, very human. Um, sure. And that's why I suppose archaeology um, is so popular and so frequently appears on TV and media because people are just Isn't interested it funny, where though? they came from. Yeah, it's super popular. And, you know, Indiana Jones probably has had a hand in that too. Um, but you, it's still very difficult to get a job in. So m- millions of people are interested. And so you'd assume the market is gigantic, but it's difficult to get work in it. It doesn't, there's, there's an economic sort of mismatch there. It's like with so many people interested in it, there should be many more opportunities for people to make a living in the field. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a highly skilled job that takes years yeah. of so, uh, so what, yeah, experience. So, but so why, why do you think with so many people interested, it's still so hard to make a living? I would imagine it, it's like many other skills or crafts out there that that they are fueled by people or run by people that love it and do it for the enjoyment and love of it. Um, and that's the currency that I suppose developers or government ministers rely on rather than actually paying people properly. So the amateurs are fucking the market, in other words. Ha- that happens um, in historical martial arts all the time. Yeah, I'm like sure. There, there, yeah, There are plenty of places where um, they'd, they'd like to have a seminar from me. When I quote them, my rates, they are appalled because they're used to getting uh, people coming in to teach for a weekend and, you know, they'll cover your petrol. Mm -hmm. That's fucking generous. (laughs) It's like, no, 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 this is my actual job, right? So I need to, if I'm going to be away from home for four days, I need to come back with something to show for it 
business wise. Otherwise, it's mm-hmm. me going on holiday, and that's not really fair on the wife and kids. So, yeah. you know, where, I, yeah, I, same was also true in cabinet making back in the late nineties. Like one thing we saw a lot was people, for example, retiring from the RAF, um, and you know doing cabinet making and because they had all the time in the world and they had a pension so they weren't worried about the money they were making amazingly good furniture and they were selling it basically at cost right and that's just material cost not not including any reasonable representation of their time so it was quite hard for professional cabinet makers because all the amateurs were doing amazing work and basically giving it away yeah Um, and in the heritage sector, there there is a huge, huge amount of volunteer um, support, both in museums right. and um, in in other heritage um, components. Uh, field archaeology is a little bit different in that you can have organised excavations where members of the public are either able to volunteer to be part of it or they actually pay to be part of an excavation. So the the excavations at Vindolanda Roman Fort um, have had a long, long process of um, people paying to be part of the excavation. And they always, I mean, so they have a lottery system that the places go like that as soon as they're available because so many people are keen. And because because they have such stunning finds from there. I mean, the Roman stuff, I mean, it's modern to me, but they, you know, they get shoes. Yeah, yeah, those iPhone carrying Roman bastards, aren't they? Exactly. (laughs) They just came in and ruined prehistory, came over here and took our jobs. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, and they it, wrote it, Latin it, all over everything. It did, yeah. They brought those letters. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but even, you know, the excavations and um, archaeological field work from a professional basis, if there's a development or a new road or a new railway be put in, cannot, uh, a very small proportion of it is amateurs and volunteers because it, it they're often a site where you you either need professional insurance, you need professional training, you need professional X, Y, and Z. Mm. You know, as a member of the public, you cannot be in that space, let alone pick up a trowel. And excavations like that are, are going on across the UK. I mean, there's a couple near here in Norfolk, um, and they will be strictly non-public. Uh, and that's purely on the safety aspect, yeah. even before it comes to the correct recovery, recording of material, and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, amateurs and volunteers do make up a somewhat unsustainable part of more of the museum outreach sector, but less so for field archaeology. So I, I would say, if I had to put my money on it, that it, it's more, uh, and, you know, I, get, I guess a little bit like the NHS or the National Health Service that we have here in the UK, that you know the, those practitioners and highly, highly experienced professionals are being paid very poorly for a job that is quite literally saving people's lives um, that we couldn't really do without. But they do it and they say they do it because they love it and they mm. love being able to help and save people. And that is the currency that you know the government or officials are relying on so that they don't have to pay these people a proper wage um, to actually do what they do. Um, and, and it is, it's such a shame when, you know, you know, again, particularly in the UK at the moment, we're hearing of large amounts of money being squirreled away to 
government pals and uh, yeah, yeah, officials. Yeah. And you know, it's infuriating. And there are so many sectors out there. And archaeology is is almost for fun in comparison to emergency services that are yeah, vital. Sure. Um, so it, yeah, I it, mean, the, there is a massive. They're not very comparable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. Okay, so we should talk about swords at least briefly, given you know the time yeah. of the show. <laughs> so uh, when I was over at your workshop, um, we cast these bronze swords, which lovely, um, and I'm taking mine to a friend called Sergio Muelle, who is a blacksmith who lives like half an hour away. Um, so next week we, I'm going over to his place so I can get, you know polish it all up and stuff on his machines because it's just oh, going nice. to save me so much time. Yeah. Um, but so bronze swords, it's it's way earlier than any of the stuff we have written records for in terms of how to mm -hmm. use. Um, and I guess most listeners have probably never handled a bronze sword and they don't really know how bronze works as a as a metal to cut stuff with. So can you just kind of describe what they're like um, and give us an idea as to their like durability and cutting power, that kind of stuff? Sure. So I guess if I was going to give a, a, a simplistic breakdown, uh, we'll start with their production. Uh, most bronze swords are an alloy of copper and tin. And as we move further forward through the Bronze Age, lead becomes more frequent but it's mostly copper, usually around 90% with some variation. And the bronze is cast into a mold of something like clay or stone, uh, or as uh, we did on the workshop, sand, compacted sand. Uh, once that cast has been made, the sword is uh, cleaned um, and refined, and the edges are then forged to harden them. Uh, the handle will be too uh, handle scales that are riveted um, through the handle with a pommel, usually organic, something like wood, um, that is then fitted um, onto the, uh, the base of the handle um, via just a peg um, that uh, has the socket for the peg actually in the pommel. So there's, there's very little holding it in place other than friction alone. In terms of weight, bronze swords generally weigh anywhere between 600 grams to just under a kilo um, yeah. and just under a kilo for the very large swords um, that were what is large in this context how long are we talking uh, well le length is it can be a tricky one because you can get some very very thin narrow uh, swords that we looked at on the workshop that archaeologists identified as ra uh, rapiers, which uh, was, uh, which you uh, yeah, you absolutely hated because uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, it's a long there, thin you know, but, pokey stick. It's not a rapier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and and, and I, not, I guess, they're not even rapier length. I mean, yeah. the, the really long ones were what about like thirty inches, maybe something like that. About a yard um, I mean, for the the really long ones can get to over 40 centimeters. Um, 40 centimeters or 40 inches? Centimeters are, are metric, I'm afraid. Okay, so 40 centimeters is like this big. Yeah, um, it can it's, get it's, longer. It's like 15 inches more or less. Okay, yeah. our rapiers tend to be 120 centimeters. Oh. Yeah. Right, because they're made I of steel, which, is, yeah. <laughs> which has its advantages. But um, okay, let me just dial back something you said earlier. You mentioned forging the edges. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that people who aren't familiar with bronze 
they'll have in their head you know you stick it in a fire you get it red hot you bash it you stick it in a fire you get it red hot you bash it you stick it in a fire you get it red hot and then you dunk it in water to kind of quench it that's not at all what we're talking about so could you describe no. the process by which you've taken your your cast bronze sword out and polished up or whatever and you're going to forge the edges sharp what is that process like so instead of hot forging as you would with iron or steel the once you cast your sword into a mold that should be the last time that any significant heat is applied to the blade once you've cleaned and polished uh, the blade to remove any casting flash or just surface patina the forging is done um, using uh, an anvil and a hammer um, but it's very very localized uh, and it's all the way um, around the edge from the tip pretty much to where um, I guess your guard or, or uh, the, the st at least the start of the hand or um, whether you count them as a guard or not is a another story um, but that is done via cold work you may if you have to re-soften um, the bronze um, anneal it which is where you'd have to get it to a cherry red state um, which is still fairly hot but not near a thousand degrees. Uh, once bronze starts to go um, to a cherry red state, um, which can be several hundred degrees, it gets extremely brittle um, and a hammer strike will break it and snap it. And that's the best way to recycle a piece of bronze is just to get it hot and bash it to bits um, to put it back into a crucible and start again if you need to. That uh, cold forging process around the outside to work hard on the blade uh, breaks down and compresses the crystalline structure so that the edge is much harder because freshly cast bronze is very very soft and in fact once a sword is cast in bronze from the stone possibly the origins of the uh, the folklore myth story um, it is worth flexing the blade a couple of times almost bending it over your knee a couple of times because initially it will be incredibly soft and you can almost bend it in your hands but after a couple of bends and flexes it will toughen up very quickly and that's because the um, atomic lattice that if it was just copper or just tin would be a regular atomic lattice which allows the atoms to slide over each other in rows once that alloy has been created and tin or lead has been added it breaks up those regular rows so although it can be moved a little bit initially those gaps um, that would be filled by an atom of the same size as the one that left might not be filled by an atom of the same size it might be filled by a larger atom of tin or lead so those spaces lock up but it in bending it a few times it toughens up the blade it's still a soft core and that's why you'd need to forge the outside to harden it so cl people are clearly starting to understand the value of having soft and hard parts of the blade but when you compare that emerging understanding of what makes a good sword to the actual balance of the sword then it shows they still have a very very long way to go they're very effective ah, weapons hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. oh okay. hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on all right okay so just just to recap the how do you get the edge sharp thing you basically you stick sure. it on an, on an anvil and you go ding 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 yeah. ding 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 with a hammer much like you peen a sickle right um which actually for the average listener peening a sickle is no more 
familiar than than forging the edge of a bronze sword. So, yeah. <laughs> so not, not not a helpful analogy there. Okay. No. So um, so you're going ding 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 ding, and it's basically it's just smushing the bronze into the the edge shape that you want, and that process of bashing it hardens it up, right? And so you get a relatively it, yeah. hard, relatively sharp edge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now. The bronze swords that I have, leave aside the monster that I made with my template, uh, the one that, that came from your template, pick it up. As soon as I get a bit of handle on that, which will be happening in a couple of weeks, um, I can feel already that it's a perfectly lively blade to swing around and hit people with, mm-hmm. right? So, and the mass is far enough forward away from the hand that so you're going to get plenty of presence in the blade when you smack something with it. But because the weapon is relatively short and it's relatively, there's not a lot of mass, having it further away from the hand gives you this liveliness and this, this sort of striking power without actually making the weapon slow. So I, I think it actually handles beautifully. And the example you cast um, will be within the more acceptable grounds because it is a much shorter blade. Whereas for some of the rapiers or some of the leaf-shaped swords, they get much, much, much longer. Uh, and I suppose uh, next time, and you know, we're perhaps with some uh, planning or actually thinking about it, you know, we should have looked at some of the other sword types and templates because some of them do get much longer and they get to sort of sixty sure. centimeters or so, and they, they get very wide and very heavy, and the handles are also uh, significantly shorter than you think would um, be comfortable for something like a hammer grip, and we get, can get onto grips in, in ah, yeah. a little See, bit later. This is, this is the thing. I, I don't think you would hold those weapons with a hammer grip. That's yeah. not how well, they're, We can get onto that shortly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, I, certainly for the longer blades, um, they are very, very top-heavy. And you can see where, as swords are getting longer towards the end of the Bronze Age, how they're trying to work out how to compensate for that Um, and by the end of the bronze age they're casting bronze uh, or tin or lead pommels to try and and mitigate that uh, imbalance of these longer blades you still get shorter blades and you know you would probably get away with a a fairly dense organic handle would be more than enough but certainly for some of the very long swords um, they they would just be so so very top heavy and if you're using it from horseback uh, you know again for someone who's not terribly experienced um, I'm sure they they could be uh, used fairly effectively but do you think they were using them actually fighting from horseback? Yes. Yeah. Okay, but they didn't have stirrups yet. They didn't have stirrups yet, but people were fighting from horseback prior to stirrups. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. It, just, it strikes me if you've got a big, heavy sword, you really, really want a stirrup under that oh, yeah. foot on your yeah, sword yeah. side. Um, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, by the way, how do we know about them, like, mounted combat, in the Bronze Age, and is so it like the, writings and because I mean most of the Trojan War stuff that's all on foot. It is, um, but we do get uh, certainly very, very, very solid evidence of bridalry furniture, um, okay. and we do get evidence of um, impact damage to skulls and uh, upper body elements that are almost certainly either from a, a consistently elevated position, which uh, if both okay. fighters happen to be on foot and one elevated, then it'd be unusually consistent or, you know, someone's on some kind of uh, mount. Okay. What, what about, um, like, drawings? Do we have, like, like uh, drawings on, the, on Grecian urns, that kind of thing? 
Uh, well, so yeah, certainly for more into the classical world, um, you, you do get uh, a much greater spectrum of well daily life as well as fighting. Mm. For Western Europe, we generally have to rely on rock art um, from places like Scandinavia, um, and you're relying on um, cultural groups that have a real flair for showing off rock art. Bronze Age rock art in Britain is generally only restricted to the early Bronze Age and, and it's very um, geographically restricted. Um, whereas, as I said, in uh, somewhere like Scandinavia, they have consistent rock art um, from the Neolithic all the way through with images of people um, fighting, holding shields and spears um, on boats. In fact, boats are some of the most common thing that you see. Um, so you get a, a much better indication, but it's still relatively simplistic. Um, it's quite hard to pick out the detail that, you know, with understanding um, swordsmanship from a few hundred years ago, that you can look at the images and drawing and debate exactly how they're holding a weapon or, or how their stance mm. sits. You know, when you're looking. Also, at we very, have like endless like textual yeah, authorities for it. i mean exactly. the reason that i the reason my period going backwards my period ends in around 1350 is because that's when our earliest sources and before that it's all it's a living history and experimental archaeology and that's great but my focus yeah. is on the texts because yeah it's honestly it's just easier to have an authoritative opinion when you can point yeah. to the book and say look he says put your left foot forward yeah right yeah, and we we just don't have that. We're we're relying on very 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 basic outlines that, um, from an artistic uh, perspective, are executed really well with the methods they're using. But mm -hmm. for high detail, are very very tricky um, to pick out. Um, but we do have a fantastic battlefield site um, in northern Germany on the on the Talents River. Um, that dates from the later end of the Middle Bronze Age, um, which has a whole variety of so weapons. Could you just put a year fight, number yeah. on that? Because again, most listeners probably don't have a clear sense of Early Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age. So what sort so of the, year are we talking about? So the Talents Battlefield site is around about uh, 1300 BC. Okay. So, I mean, it's... Uh, I guess uh, for Britain and for th this side of Europe, the Bronze Age, to put it on a timeline, um, starts uh, about 4,500 years ago um, and ends about 2,700 years ago. Um, so it's sort of slap bang within the middle of that, but slightly towards the later end. Um, but within uh, this site that was discovered by a farmer plowing his field at the edge of the river, a vast amount of human bones were suddenly found. And archaeologists realized they'd found the rarest of archaeology, a battlefield site, um, made even rarer because it's a prehistoric battlefield from the Bronze Age, where a huge amount of the remains were left, as well as many of the objects that ranged from... And that's, that's um, kind of weird, because yeah. normally people clear up after that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because either the bodies need to be buried or whatever. And there's all that loot that you can pick up and take home and sell. Well, exactly. Yeah, it is, it is quite unusual. Um, but the way the remains are scattered um, suggests that many were just left or, or fell into the river. And certainly for the, um, the heavy... Um, weaponry and equipment you could understand how that may sink but for human remains they would stay on the surface for for some time um, but they were left and whether that was for cultural reasons very hard to say but the weaponry ranged from wooden clubs all the way through to um, copper alloy arrows spears and swords and people who were clearly um, 
at least at some point on a mount um, and were attempting to use weaponry um, an awful lot of spears being used but uh, alongside wooden clubs and projectiles um, but it, I try to liken it I, I suppose to the Western European equivalent of um, you know without a, a city-state next to it um, one of the major um, conflicts um, in the Aegean um, because we, it, it has all of the ingredients there it's just missing the Iliad unfortunately to give us <laughs> all of that extra information those names and yeah the story of who was doing what yeah yeah okay um, but the the breadth of objects uh, and the fact that people had come from a great distance to be part of this fight whether they how, knew or how what do we they know they came from a great distance so we know, so for the actual battle, um, prehistoric communities at this time, you know, each settlement may have had a couple of hundred people tops for a large settlement. Um, and the estimates for the amount of people involved in this battle are around 5,000, which is a massive number for prehistory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, once you go beyond prehistory, you get into numbers that are quoting to sort of tens of thousands, even in the classical world. But 5,000 in prehistory in the middle of Bronze Age is a big number. Um, once this site was identified, it was suggested that um, people had travelled from a great distance, and they found that out by looking at the radioactive isotopes in people's teeth, um, similar isotopes that we'll all carry today, that will um, be picked up as your, your teeth uh, replenish themselves um, by the water that we drink, um, that can tell you where people came from. Um, so my teeth, for example, uh, will give a very strong indication that I've spent most of my life living on the chalk um, in the southeast and would probably be fairly good at picking out exactly where. And it's because of those isotopes that will be within the um, chalk filtered water that as I've drank uh, large amounts of that water over my life have ended up in my teeth. And right. those uh, hard organic parts being often the best thing to be preserved, um, even over bone, um, has this um, long time scale uh, of where people have come from. And, and if they're really well preserved, it's not just a case, oh, they came from there. Um, they can, in many cases from prehistory, actually tell you where people have moved throughout their lives, um, which wow. is really amazing if, if the teeth are in good condition. Okay, so we got a pretty good picture that people came from quite far away to have this gigantic Barney. And mm -hmm. how many, you said there are about 5,000 people there. Is that 5,000 bodies or is that 5,000? Um, that's just an estimate. They're, they've that, identified a minimum number of 250 individuals, but they think they've only excavated okay. a, a very small percentage of the site. Sure. And, and battles are not normally massacres, right? So, you know, if you've got 2,000 people on each side at the beginning of the battle, at the end of the battle, you've probably got 1500 on each side at least a really high mortality rate would be about 10 percent, i think yeah, um, yeah, yeah but but that's based on sort of more modern stuff so maybe they were a bit more a bit more enthusiastic back in yeah the day. maybe yeah and, and I, uh, we we don't know how the sides were organized it may have simply been that you know people turned up on one side of the river other people turned up on the other side of the river and they were purely there just to um demonstrate their martial prowess and sure. a little more. They, they had no real um, skin in defending one side of the, ri the river other than just being able to knock someone over with whatever object they had to hand. We just don't know. 
um, that it may have been incredibly organised, and that you know there may have been very close political ties and uh, alliances that pulled people in from a distance to fight over this causeway or bridge, but we just don't know, sadly. Interesting. Okay, but it's given us all sorts of information about how people got murdered with Bronze Age stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this battle, do you see evidence of people striking downwards from above, as if on horseback? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of a lot of shoulder shoulder damage in particular on the tops of shoulders. Uh, that that would definitely indicate either projectile weapons or yeah, people could be standing on a wall. But more likely, if there's lots of them all spread out, then it's going to be horses. It could be, um, and I, I guess that would uh, rely on a wall or evidence of a wall being found. But as I understand it, there, there isn't. There is. There's even pretty scanty evidence of a bridge or causeway, let alone uh, mm. a wall or fortification. Ah, they had drones. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we have solved just, it. They were, they were dropping bronze swords from drones onto yes, the tents. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I did wonder why my sword orders had gone up so dramatically in the last year or so. <laughs> Um, now, okay, tell us a little bit about the armour. What sort of armour would you expect to find in this period? So armour in, in the Bronze Age ranges depending on where you are. But in Britain, we have no uh, bronze armour and no evidence of Bronze Age armour. There may have been organic armour. We have just not found it yet. There are plenty okay. of components that may have been used to uh, attach armour or tie armour together. Um, but we have just not found enough evidence however if you cross the channel there is plenty of stunning sheet bronze cuirasses helmets greaves and they are beautifully made really so what you're saying is we had amazing armor in britain and the french came over nicked it all and took it back to france yeah exactly that's the most logical explanation yeah Exactly. Okay, that's what I thought you were trying to say. Um, <laughs> but being very polite to our French listeners. So, why? Again, France is I'm, just I'm across the channel, yeah. and people have been crossing the channel for thousands and thousands of years. So, why do they have fancy armour across the channel, and we don't have it in Britain? It, it is a very good question. It's one that's very hard to answer with any um, solid conviction. Um Simply okay, for th- this is not an this is not an academic paper, so you can no. speculate freely. And oh, I'm going we'll, to we'll yeah. flag it as speculation. So what what, yeah, what do yeah. you think happened? So what we do see not not just with armor in Britain, but with finished objects and products that are made from bronze and made from metal, is a, a very large quantity of material from an island that has very large and wealthy raw material resources for copper, tin, gold, and lead. Almost all the metals you need to fuel the Bronze Age. Um, As you cross the channel, those resources become far fewer and far between and far poorer. Um, You do get copper in certain areas and you get tin in other areas but they're spread over a much wider area um, that would be within uh, different um, cultural um, or tribal territories if you like whereas in Britain you know there are a lot more copper sources or tin sources that are almost within the same area and certainly with copper and tin and lead in places like Cornwall or Devon they can be within a few um, kilometers of each other Um, right so you actually have everything you need to make all the bronze so yeah. why is the fancy armour ending up in France? 
So I think the reason why we don't get um, as many stunningly finished items, whether it be swords or cauldrons or armor, is because the raw material um, that we have or had in Britain um, is being used to manufacture quantity rather than quality. Whereas as soon as that material moves further away from source, there's more time invested into making or using the material to its highest value level. Uh, okay, so if you're close to the if you're close to the supply of the raw material, you just mass produce a bunch of stuff because it's cheap to do so, and you can basically get all of your expenses, your mining and, and smelting expenses back. But if mm -hmm. you have only a small quantity of the material available, you need to make that into an object that you can get maximum money for. Mm -hmm. Huh. It's not necessarily the right answer. That's an interesting. I've never even thought of it in, yeah. in terms of basically but, raw economics we're talking. Yeah. And I think for lack of um, wide geographic organization, um, that if you had the miners and the smelters and the casters and the finishers and the fitters, that's quite a long chain of sequence that if you happen to have all of those particular crafting levels within one very, very localized area, th then that's great. But it, that that takes a huge amount of material to support and, and yeah. cost to support. Um, and although there are those material uh, values and wealth within those regions, is it enough to support all of those craftspeople? Whereas okay. if you're in a much wider area, regionally you can start to, I suppose, perhaps mm. have that specialization. Okay. But let's say, let's say I'm a, a Middle Bronze Age warrior in Britain, and I know that as a regular part of my job, people are going to be trying to take my head off with bronze swords and whatnot. Okay. Mm. I am going to want a helmet. I am going to want a cuirass. I'm going to want all sorts of stuff that makes it harder for my opponent to do their job. So the question is, why do you think people in Britain weren't armoring up? I suppose the, the, the question of why do we not see as much armor in Iron Age communities in Britain could, could be um, added on sure. added on to that. And, and whether that's purely down to wealth or, or, or perceived wealth and being able to produce a male shirt, because that's an expensive product to make, but yeah. you know, even you know, a thick piece of leather would, you know, it's not great, but it provides something. But then on the other hand, you've potentially got the cultural aspects of um, what it means to not wear armor, um, and that may be part of it. That, that's a, it, a big it, old maybe. It reminds me of, um, like, if you look at infantry tactics in the American Civil War, an awful lot of what you did was walk slowly towards people who were shooting at you, mm -hmm. right? Which seems absolutely insane from a modern perspective. Um, but, I mean, it could be that the, the cultural ideal of a warrior was bravery and putting on a helmet was clearly an act of cowardice. Potentially. I mean, yeah. that, that would sort of, that would also maybe explain why in France they just had a different cultural setup. And so it was considered noble to wear armor, whereas in Britain, perhaps it was considered ignoble to wear armor. Possibly. I mean, that's a it, possibility. 
Because people yeah, are weird. Um, I mean, study history long oh, enough, yeah. you learn that people are absolutely fucking weird and they come to some very, very strange conclusions about how they ought to be behaving. Yeah, totally. And the Bronze Age is no exception to that. I mean, for an, an island nation that in the Middle Ages um, relying on fish and fishing was such an important part of the economy, in Bronze Age Britain, people did not eat fish or anything that came from the water. Why? We don't know. It may Which have is, been because they were disposing their dead there. Yeah. Uh, that, again, that is absolutely freaky weird because there's all this, yeah. not free, but easily accessible protein. Um, and in other bits, other parts of Europe at the same time, people were living off fish. Yeah. I and mean, as you go across into Europe, there, it, it starts to become quite a mixed palette for what people are doing with um, things from the sea. Um, but and just Britain, for the, they're just weird. For the, for the better, <laughs> in Britain, we're just weird. Yeah. Okay. I think we found a strap line for the episode. Um, okay. So how, I mean, I was there when you gave this talk at the beginning of the bronze casting thing. So I, I'm asking you a lot of questions. I know your answers to, um, but I am guessing that the average non-archaeologically trained listener is wondering how the hell, you know, they didn't eat fish because, you know, you eat a fish and then the fish is gone. So how do you know? Uh, the bones, the the lack the bones. of uh, the 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 faunal the flora and faunal remains uh, for lack of fish bones, and although fish bones are very small and fragile and would uh, disappear much quicker than a thick old cow bone, where you do get really well preserved um, sites, where even the finest of or, of organic remains are found, you still don't get fish bones, um, and. If you broaden um, the, um, I guess, plate, the potential plate of food that comes from the sea, even shellfish are very much limited and they have hard invertebrate components that are much tougher and survive much better than tiny fish bones and they just do not appear. One of the very rare sites that we do have um, that does have evidence of eating fish comes from Must Farm near Peterborough, which is a very late Bronze Age site with clear evidence of continental influence and um, exchange of goods. And via the coprolites, the poos that dropped into the waters below, there is evidence of parasites, gut parasites, that people would have picked up by eating raw fish. Um, so. Okay. Where they were eating fish, at this one example, they were not cooking the fish, uh, which for very muddy fish, I mean, uh, I'm not a fisherman and you know, we eat some fish, but not a great deal, but we certainly don't eat um, real murky water bottom feeder fish, which I would imagine uh, are very earthy and perhaps not particularly tasteful. Okay, so they were eating these things raw because they had fancy European guests who liked eating fish. Maybe. Okay. Hmm. All right. So um, you're, you're always going to come across this evidence of absence of evidence is not evidence of absence problem, mm -hmm. right? But if you're not finding fish bones in midden heap after midden heap after midden heap, then the chances are there weren't any fish bones if you are finding everything else. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's, there is definitely something missing there. But the other thing that we have that's missing are other bones and it's human bones. Um, right. We're not sure what people were doing with their dead after the early Bronze Age. I have, I have a book. I'm wandering around my study. Um, I have a book. I'm just trying to find it. Um, uh, it's by Timothy Taylor, I think. It basically posits that, that the reason all these bones are missing is because people were being eaten by people. Wow. What do you That's think? That's a big claim. 
That's uh, I know to it's be fascinating. Yeah. So um, okay, so where uh, where are all these human remains? If they haven't been sort of butchered and eaten, they'd have been yeah, buried. Um, well, you burned. said it, they've been butchered. And if they were being butchered, we'd expect to see butchery marks. Even if they were cooking and trying to render okay. the bones down as much as they could, it would still leave Yeah, yeah you'd still... Yeah. Uh, and um, his book does have pictures of human bones with butchering marks on them. Yeah. That I didn't so, so, obviously, occasionally some people were definitely being eaten. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. And there was even ritualized flesh removal, not necessarily butchery, but just to expose the bones, to expose the hard organic parts before those bones were then moved and dealt with in a very different way but that's a different story um no, no, for... hang on <laughs> you're gonna have to tell us that story though <laughs> yeah i will hang on. let's okay. finish this first one um, all right so for uh, the bronze age uh human remains once the person had passed they seem to be cremating them um, that becomes okay. very popular uh, and once those people have been cremated the remains of that cremation disappear archaeologically yeah. Whereas earlier in the Bronze Age, they were putting cremations into cremation urns and they were putting those cremation urns in the ground in a pit that archaeologically they survive really well. Yeah, well, yeah, because it's, it's Middle Bronze it's, Age onwards, cremations disappear. Yeah, exactly, yeah. ash in a pot. Um, so, so, so maybe they're they, scattering the ashes. Yeah, and either they're scattering them into the landscape or uh, I tend to think they were scattering them or placing. The, the remains into water and watery places. And we know watery places are a special part of the Bronze Age world because as well as possibly human remains as ashes that have been deposited into water, they are also depositing um, metalwork and weapons in particular. And many of those weapons and objects are intentionally destroyed, damaged or killed, um, either by bending them, breaking them or intentionally heavily notching them before placing them in the water. So water okay. seems to be this very special place that is uh, really an, another world, one of those liminal spaces. Okay, so that's what's... Um perhaps feeding the prohibition against eating fish potentially yeah because you could be eating granny who's come back be. as a fish yeah okay so, so tell, 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 yeah <laughs> so, so tell us about the um the ritual flensing yeah so the, the the ritual removal of flesh is um more of a neolithic activity so prior to the bronze age um when Around 6,000 years ago, we have the arrival of the first farmers to Britain, uh, and they changed the landscape of Britain dramatically. Um, we have no genetic link, uh, apart from evolutionary link, we have no direct genetic link to hunter-gatherers. They were wiped out genetically within 200 years as soon as Neolithic farmers got here. Wow. Yeah, that's quick. Um, that's quick so they they were probably hunted then they were, they were very deliberately genocidally yeah. okay but hang on you've got a population of hunter gatherers and then a bunch of settlers move in and you're saying there's no genetic connect you know, the descendants hundreds of years later um, show that they all descend from the settler group not from the hunter gatherer group then these hunter gatherers yeah. were like where did they go where did they go? Um, and the obvious thing would be, well, just just like, you know, the Europeans did in the, what became the United States. Oh, you've got all these people running around living tribal lifetimes. Let's just slaughter them. Yeah. Um, and 
Elsewhere in Europe, you do see evidence of clear violence, but it, it isn't clear evidence of a farmer versus hunter-gatherer. It's often okay. farmer against farmer with the occasional hunter-gatherer thrown in. Um, so what that happened to them? Well, we don't know. We don't know, unfortunately. And that, that may be partly um, because um, the, the study of ancient genetics... Um, is improving and mm -hmm. the refinement and the definition of picking out what happened to some of those um, genetic sequences w will become clearer over time. But as the Bronze Age appears in Europe and in Britain, Neolithic people disappear completely. But that is because uh, the Yamanara group comes from the different, they're different people. So, the, the, so the, yeah. the, basically, Bronze Age technology comes into europe with a with a culture so mm -hmm. it's not it's not just the techniques that are being transferred it's very much it's, the people yeah it's people with these techniques are emigrating in and getting rid of or pushing out the people that were living there mm -hmm. huh because that's sort of my imagination of how the bronze age spread is some people have some great ideas about casting bronze and those ideas yeah. spread it didn't occur to me that it was a culture that spread it's very much the movement of people over ideas Huh, that's very interesting. So, so I just had this brilliant idea for a movie, by the way, right? Okay. Picture the scene, like Stone Age Britain. You've got these hunter-gatherers running around doing very, like, um, photogenic things with bows and arrows and stuff. And then you get these, these settlers coming in and doing their farming, whatever. And, of course, the, the settlers hate the hunter-gatherers and they go hunting the hunter-gatherers. And the hunter-gatherers are actually very good at hunting, so they, they shoot back and da-da-da. But, of course, you have a young lady from one group and a young man from another group who meet and fall in love and don't kill each other and all sorts of Romeo and Juliet stuff happens. And it is, it'll be a blockbuster, I tell you. It'll be brilliant. And there'll be so yeah, much work for, for archaeologists yeah, and ancient craft yeah, people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, that, All right. that sounds like it's got legs. There, there is a prehistoric horror movie that I think is coming out soon, which is set in the Paleolithic. Oh, yeah? um, okay. I forget the name of it, but uh, that is coming out soon, I think. Um, but yeah, that from a, a people and ideas and genetic point of view, people are being replaced and replaced and replaced. Um, I mean, from an individual point of view, uh, Utzi the Iceman, the uh, frozen mm -hmm. mummy that was found in the Italian Alps in 91, his only, and he, he lived about 5,350 years ago. His only descendants, genetic descendants, live in extremely isolated places in islands like Sardinia and Corsica. Really? Uh, he has no, no descendants on, on the mainland at all. Huh. So his culture got displaced at some point. Yeah. Displaced, destroyed, assimilated, you name it. But in some way they... Okay. they but if it's gone. assimilated, the genetics would be incorporated. In theory, but Generally if they're speaking. watered down, I suppose, so much, whether they are then appearing or not. I am not a geneticist at all, okay. um, but uh, I, I, for, for them to disappear quite so firmly and, and with such a hard line of disappearing it is, is very strange. I, I agree. Um, yeah, it, it, is. Me. it must be genocide. I mean, yeah. it's what people tend to do. It is. There, yeah. there are so many examples of genocides occurring when one powerful group moves into an area occupied by a less powerful group, and the big powerful group just obliterates the original inhabitants. I mean, that's that's like a really common human pattern. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. Being, I mean, we, yeah. yeah. What what would constitute evidence for or against that theory? 
Um, well, four um, would cer certainly find... Um, well, I suppose the evidence we've just talked about, I suppose, could be four, that there is this very hard disappearance and not a gentle disappearance. I would argue that that's probably four, based on the evidence we have and the techniques we have. That may change over time, but we would also need far, far more evidence of violence. There's just not enough. So we're looking, for a, we're looking for a grave of a Stone Age hunter-gatherer who's got a bronze arrowhead in his skull. Yeah, and it's just not okay. enough. All right, interesting. Okay, so you spend a lot of your time actually making stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing like interacting with the artifacts and actually with your hands and, and making these things and, or making the tool and then using the tool to kind of give you an insight into how things work. So what have you changed your mind on in the last 10 years or so? And there's probably lots of things that just, you know, Pick one or two. So the thing that's, I suppose, changed my mind is actually what I was looking at in my PhD. Um, and rather than weaponry, I was looking at hunting equipment. And I was looking at the hunting equipment tips in particular, because in archaeology, uh, generally a lot of the research focus is on the actual objects that are there um, and what you can tell about the objects and how they were made, how they might have been used and what that might have meant. I was interested in these particular hunting uh, objects, the tips of these spears that would have been made by the first modern humans, Homo sapiens, into Europe about 40,000 years ago because they were made of antler instead of sharp stone tips that can be made, even very simple ones, in a matter of moments. Antler would take a very long time to carve. And these were particularly interesting because it wasn't just a shaped piece of pointed antler. Um, it actually had a split in the base, uh, something you can't do with stone and maintain. You can split a, a stone, but it will split right through like a piece of slate, or even if you have a partial split, it won't be very strong. Whereas with a, a piece of antler, because it's quite flexible, even more flexible than bone, which is quite brittle by comparison, you can carve this uh, very pointed tip from antler while still maintaining this split base. And as someone, again, who's so used to seeing stone tools and using them and making this why why would you make these because they take so much time with stone tips or even um, solid base tips the actual uh, arrow or projectile shaft the wood has to facilitate the tip so the the tip of the object fits into the slot or notch whatever you call it because uh, socketed arrowheads or spearheads hadn't uh, been created yet that's something we're so used to today but um, in stone very hard to do so I wondered if there, there was something a bit different they were thinking about uh, the materials in a different way so to test whether they were actually spear tips at all because we haven't got any spear shafts or parts of spear shafts that have been found I needed to make a load of replicas and fire them into ballistics gel at high speed to see if they would actually be lethal enough um, I also made some full spears that I had thrown by inexperienced throwers um, and more experienced javelin throwers just to see how they moved through the air unsurprisingly because it was a straight stick you know, someone who knows what they're doing can throw a stick in a reasonable straight line and keeping it somewhat stable in the air, which, you know, fine, is a stick. It should be able to do that um, if you know what you're doing. But for the lethality tests, 
um, with just the sharpened pieces of antler. Um, in a drop tower, which was calibrated, they were penetrating to over 20 centimeters quite consistently. Um, wow. uh, which is uh, that's a long way in. Th that's a long way, um, and th this is twenty percent um, ballistics so just, gel, which is NATO level. So, so just to clarify, to standardise the the forces involved, mm -hmm. instead of throwing them into a target, which can vary, you took into a drop tower and just drop the spear or arrows straight down onto the ballistics yeah. gel. Right, with okay. a calibrated weight and speed but it can be gas fired if it needs to be okay. um, because well when the the beauty of having them thrown first and recorded them recording them being thrown is that we could um, get the actual speed data of how they were ah, okay so so you throw them by hand to get an idea of how fast these things should be moving and then you put them in a drop tower to get a consistent yeah. um so, so you're you're sort of simulating the same forces that they would have when they were thrown, but yeah. you can do it consistently. And so, you by making variations to the arrowhead itself, the any changes in penetration are caused by the arrowhead, not by other factors yeah. like it's much more like control. My arm is getting tired. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would have been interesting to have a ballistics target at the spear throwing range, just as a point of interest, but uh, there are just so many variables involved and, you know, it could be the animal moving or you name it. It, yeah. just, it, it would be more from interest rather than being from a, from a controlled point of view. So we were finding that they were penetrating to around 20 centimetres, which is a very, very lethal for a large yeah. mammal, even if it doesn't penetrate a vital organ, that's more than enough um, trauma to eventually cause them to die um, so that proved that they were lethal enough the next thing I had to work out was if there was anything special about the spear tips if they missed the target and hit something hard because I wondered if they were using this material because they could split it and they could make a split because remember with the stone tips it's the shaft that facilitates the tip but with antler with a split base it's the tip that facilitates the shaft. So the weakness, instead of being this way round, is now this way round. So the weakness okay, so is now in the, the tip. The weakness is in the tip, not in the shaft. Okay. Exactly. So I wondered whether they had changed conventional thinking of, uh, you know, I guess, traditional thinking of uh, hunting technology because there was something going on in the wider landscape. And actually, if you look at um, northwestern Europe at this time, during a time period um, in geological, geographic, archaeological fields, it is called Marine Isotope Stage 3, um, which okay. is about 40-odd um, thousand years ago up until about 28,000 years ago. Um, Europe would have been very, very cold during this time. Um, an average July temperature in central France would have been around five degrees. Um, wow, that's really cold. So Britain would have been very cold in, in the peak seasons, but to an extent that Britain wouldn't have had many occupants, human or not, because it was so cold. But there were stages during this period that people were getting as far north as northern Wales. So they were still coming into Britain and still going quite far north. And Britain was uh, connected to the mainland at this point, so moving back and forth was very easy. Um, but it would have been like an Arctic um, or maybe boreal tundra. So very open, lots of permafrost. Um, 
and if there was any uh, non-icy areas, it just would have been a steppe grassland. So like Mongolia or, or uh, Siberia, very few trees. And the trees that would have been there would have been only in very sheltered south-facing valleys um, where there would have been quite cold adapted species like pine or larch or silver birch, very slow growth. So what trees. you're saying is, what you're heading towards is the economic value or the replacement cost of the spear shaft or the arrow shaft was much much higher than you would expect living in a kind of woody area correct yeah that's right. exactly right. the traditional okay. woods that you would have thought of for something like an arrow shaft a projectile shaft a hazel or ash just would not come in for thousands of years because they are quite late on the tree um, occupation list the, your first ones are things like silver birch um, sorry, sorry tree occupation list there's actually a list of when tree species came into britain yeah yeah, and it's yeah. called the tree occupationist. Well, that, that's okay. that's me using that term. But <laughs> okay. uh, you get your pioneer species. So these will be the yeah. first species that will come in after you know it's been barren for whatever mm. reason, um, usually climatic. And it will be things like silver birch, which is why um, when you get woodland that is starting to become dominated, as is much of Britain today, mainly in the south, you will see very few silver birches, and they generally only live. To 30 or 40 years before they fall over and, uh, and die um, and they just get overtaken by the species that we're a lot more used to okay and interestingly if you go to finland it's all conifers and birch trees yes like the one thing i really missed when i lived in finland was oak trees and ash trees like a proper deciduous forest you just don't get them there yeah okay. and it's just the latitude you're going further north okay so so in your phd you're basically coming around to the idea that um, the reason for this this choice of material in the head is because it was more elastic, so that they could make the heads sort of. If if the if you throw your spear and it accidentally hits a rock instead of the animal, mm -hmm. it's going to be the spear head that is easily replaced that's broke breaking yeah. rather than the shaft itself. So that that was my thinking. Um, okay. And via doing a survey into some more higher latitude regions, it was you know quite clear that if you wanted a straight, flexible piece of wood, they're really hard to find in that kind yeah. of area. And if you do find some kind of piece of wood, it takes a lot of work or a lot of luck to find it, to actually work it into something usable. Um, and actually, ethnographically, you see that in areas where there are far greater opportunities for useful species that people are, are conserving and trading particular well made spear shafts or hunting um, shafts um, from certain trees in certain areas for different weights and different qualities to them and there's no reason that was any different in uh, Europe during the Ice Age. So to prove my theory, uh, now that I've proved the lethality and that they could actually be thrown or used as a lance was that if it hit a hard target the spearhead needed to break every single time or almost every single time with no clear damage to the spear shaft and once the experiments were done each and every time the spearhead broke very consistently in a way that matched archaeological examples quite consistently. wow very so satisfying it was very satisfying um but even more interestingly it was something i didn't anticipate at all was how the uh, spearheads were attached to the shaft because although they fit um, over a beveled um, sort of wedge-shaped spear shaft, 
um, there's no evidence of glue being used because it's actually a split piece of antler. You'd have marrow on the inside where you should be mm. able to see little bits of evidence of glue and there's none archaeologically. So they weren't gluing them. And as we found through the throwing experiments, um, binding was unnecessary because once it hit the ground, even with binding, the spear tip became dislodged anyway. So it was a pointless activity yeah. to do that. And once the lethality test was uh, being conducted, the spear shaft would make contact and leave the spearhead in the ballistics gel and the, the actual mm. spear shaft could be retrieved. So if you were hunting reindeer in more of a corral or interception strategy, as they were coming past, you could poke, put the next tip on, poke and put the next right. tip on. But that becomes even more valuable when you understand what the tip is doing because for its split at the base, it's keeping the wound channel open so that they yes. feel quicker. Wow. Actually, that reminds me a little bit of, you know, the sand people, the Bushmen in the Kalahari? Their arrows, they have a kind of long reed, which is the arrow shaft, and then they have an iron point, which is attached to a wooden stick, um, and those those iron points are poisoned, and the, the tapered end of the wooden stick is slotted into the end of the reed, and that's the arrow. And so what happens is... When you shoot a giraffe, the arrowhead pierces the giraffe's skin. The giraffe goes, oh, that's not very nice, and starts running away. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the arrow shaft itself gets knocked off onto the ground, but the head stays in the animal, and so the poison is, goes through, and then mm -hmm. the animal falls over work, quite quickly yeah. because... The, these these heads, the, the poison is really effective, and we see that um, specifically so have, with arrows yeah. in Europe as well, where they they have right. detachable foreshafts. Right, huh? So, so it's, it's it's almost like you know, load and shoot, load and shoot, load and shoot with your. Yeah. So what spirit. that taught me wow. was that. Um, Rather than just looking at the object and the object does this and, oh, look, it's similar shape to this object, blah, 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 the object, the object, the object, actually looking at the broader picture of mm -hmm. what's going on and why decisions were being made and things like resource management actually have a greater impact on the object, the object, the object and try doing it the other way around, looking at the world and then the object rather than the object and then the world around it. Huh. And it's interesting to think, you know, you would just assume that the spearhead would be tied on because that's has always illustrated in like cartoons. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the notion of it being just friction fit, mm -hmm. that's genius. But it's the same with a stone axe that you don't, it, mm -hmm. uh, a stone axe just fits into a wooden handle, which, you know, if you've got a, a length of wood, it's just got a socket cut out of it and the stone axe fits into the socket. You don't need to glue it. You don't need to bind it because the glue is, you know, it's and not barrel die. It won't hold it. And the binding does nothing. So it's, as long as it's a well-fitted socket, reverse momentum from hitting the tree keeps it in place. It's the same with um, with hammer handles. Yeah. And, you know, a, 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 not the, the crap you get out of being cute is different, but if a properly made hammerhead with a properly made hammer shaft, you're just, it's, it's just friction. It's just the, the shape, the, the tapering of the, of the hole in the head and the tapering of the shaft means that the head's got nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And, and that kind of design and thinking was starting to be explored about 40,000 years ago because what they had essentially come up with was coming up with a component with 
a design weakness to protect the valuable parts, which we have in our households today in the form of the fuse. Right. But they thought about that 40,000 years ago. Yeah, or the crumple zone in a car. Yeah, totally. Huh. That is fascinating. Okay, so questions I ask most of my guests. Um, you've obviously acted on a lot of your ideas, but what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? So the, the best act. Uh, the best idea is uh, at some point, um, I mean, I, I'm starting the process of writing uh, that that, uh, that book or the idea towards a book and the ideas because we, we talked about it in the workshop around it. That's starting to happen. So I'm, okay. I'm not going to include But the that. listeners weren't there. So, yes. so what's the book yeah, about? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I have been thinking about writing a book about flint napping and the how of flint napping, how you could do it at home uh, using the book as a bit of a tutorial um, and more about the world around flint napping so that it's more than just a you do this and you can do this. It's the this is what uh, was going on at the same time as uh, people were learning how to do this and how archaeologists interpret that. So I guess I'm acting on that at the moment. So that one doesn't count. Okay. But the uh, the one I would like to act on in the future is to start to do um, larger documentaries because I've done enough TV stuff now, either from consultation or you know props and all the rest of it, um, and on-screen expert stuff to actually have. Uh, more control in the, uh, the the creation, the producing of the documentary. Because we've all seen documentaries where, that cover the Stone Age and prehistory and the presenter walks around Stonehenge and says, oh, isn't it big? And et cetera, with sort of drone shots and music. And that's great. Um, but it, it just sort of skims the surface. Whereas, you know, what I've told you about you know the the spear making and resource management that is just a little drop in the ocean but those individual little stories that are brought together uh, and used in an interesting way i mean i would love to do the bronze age because people know about the stone age they know about the celts and they know about the romans and that sort of funny period that people thought of metal is just sort of well it happened and that was kind of it um it, it's always glossed over and actually um it's there are components of that technology that we very much rely on today um, like what? and is such a big part of our world. So like that what? would be it. Well, like what? Yeah. So we we are essentially uh, Bronze Age people um, to, to begin with. Our genetic sequence, uh, the reason we're, we're light-skinned, uh, I say we is in the two of us, um, it is because um, of that uh, Yamanara uh, genetic group from the Eastern Steppe that came into Britain. Um, there is technology in the form of casting that we still do today. Yeah. Um, they have so much of. Um, even agriculture reappeared in the Bronze Age. And I say reappeared because the first farmers that came into Britain came in in the Neolithic. We know that. Um, they built their stone circles, stone tombs, etc. But they gave up with agriculture and moved over to pastoralism quite quickly because agriculture with stone tools is blooming hard. But in the Bronze Age, the Middle Bronze Age, we see a massive resurgence in agriculture, which is, again, just totally just like, oh, well, agriculture appeared and it was here to stay. No, not true at all. Could, could you just define pastoralism for the layperson so agriculture growing cereals and crops wheat and barley pastoralism keeping animals like pigs and goats and you name it okay so they went from from arable farming to animal husbandry yeah essentially okay um, um 
And they're two very different lifestyles because agriculture ties yeah. you to an area of land that you have to invest into. And if the crops fail, then you're in trouble. But with pastoralism and horticulture, you can move with your animals if you need to. And we see that in the archaeological record, again, through those teeth that are showing that people are moving around a lot. Um, but that's what they went over to quite quickly. But in the okay. Bronze Age, they went back to agriculture. So, so your documentary, you need a script, you need a production budget, you need camera people. I mean, what's actually stopping you from producing it? Uh, me to sit down and write it at the moment. Uh, ah, okay. So uh, maybe maybe get the book out first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've got the got got the ideas, got the case studies laid out. It's it's all there. It just needs to. I've even got the people lined up that know about it and know that it's okay. in thinking. I just haven't done that right. We're going to do this now. So that's the acting on that I still need to do. Okay, so you just need to write it and then raise the money and get it done. Yeah, essentially. Okay. So like, you know, when either the book comes out or the documentary comes out, you come back on the show to tell us all about it, right? Yeah, all about it. All Excellent. about those when pointy should, rocks when, and how to make them. When should we expect you back? Um, well, <laughs> the the winter was this winter was going to be the big book writing stage, okay. but uh, for, for various reasons, spare time is is becoming extremely limited for life stuff that is going around. All, all good stuff, but life stuff going on mm. is uh, is limiting that time. But uh, certainly next year, I hope to have a good old dent made into it um and then it, it you know if it's a case of how long it takes to get uh, get things moved along in the book world uh, for which i'm just okay. dipping my toes into okay so you're thinking of getting somebody else to publish it well i don't know at the moment i don't know i just need All to, right. uh, to now, make the thing first okay we, we we've been we've been chatting for quite a while um we could very easily add like half an hour to this episode by me banging on about yeah. how the mechanics of self-publishing there are plenty of other episodes where i've done that so let's just yeah. skip it for the sake of the listeners <laughs> endurance um but obviously if you you know i I've, I've had books published and i've published books um and if you want any help in you know doing any of that you, you, you just let me know yeah, right if i need a bronze sword cast i will be coming to you yes. you need a book done you come to me fair that, the, the most unusual of prehistoric changes uh from <laughs> the the time of no letters to a thing of letters yes <laughs> excellent okay so my last question um somebody gives you this huge sum of money to spend improving prehistoric crafts worldwide i'm guessing you would spend it on your documentary is that right no um because ah, okay. i would try to get that money commissioned by a channel um that's that that would be for them to invest into um, okay ideally um for for a large sum of money um there are centers out there that do sort of experimental archaeology, have replica roundhouses. Um, yeah. It was sites like that that I loved as a kid. And they do a fantastic job of maintaining and running excellent sites like that um, on the European continent. They have loads and loads and loads, whereas in Britain we have very few. Um, one of the really good uh, sites is Butzer Ancient Farm now down in Petersfield, which is near the south coast, not uh, to the north of Portsmouth and that sort of area. Um, 
but I would really like to have my own. There used to be one in Norfolk, but it closed down years ago, as many often do. They, they had that real sort of buzz in the late 90s, early noughties. Time team. Yeah, well, but building roundhouses and having volunteers build them and that sort of thing. But I'd really like to have an active centre that, uh, well, and I guess falls into our mission statement of making prehistory accessible um, so that people can come and learn how to make things. They can build a structure. They can go in a Bronze Age boat. They can do that sort of thing. Um, and universities can come there to sort of do research. Um, so that, that would be where I'd put that money, I think. That would be the best way that it could be used efficiently, I think. So you'd set up a prehistoric sort of living history experience. Yeah, sort of a a living museum, I guess. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I guess the the trick is making it solvent. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's where the money comes in, because if you have enough money behind you, you don't need to make it solvent. Yeah, I mean, as as you've experienced um, prehistoric experiences and coming to make something and experience something, it is very much... Um, well, certainly just experiences um, as a present or a gift or just a self-present is very much in in vogue. Um, But people want to spend money to come and do something interesting and fun that they can learn about. And as we talked about earlier, you know, archaeology is so popular. So there is the potential market out there if it can be marketed correctly and run effectively and ideally not run on the business side by someone who really, really loves it. So it shouldn't be me running it from no the business you the side. You need an, you know the admin, the numbers person. I would yeah. you know someone like me would do the day to day living. Let's do yeah. this. Let's build a that today, um, because otherwise it just wouldn't. You know, like so many sites, they've just become insolvent. Hmm. I mean, the one thing that like really springs to mind is it's going to be fairly out of the way. So you probably want to have some kind of accommodation. But you definitely want nice modern plumbing ensuite accommodation oh, totally. for some people. But you also want the, you know, have the full immersion experience, spend a week as a Stone Age person mm-hmm. experience also. Yeah, you, it, it would be it'd be interesting from but just an insurance point of view, just for we, we can have these people turn up, they're <laughs> gonna cook their food and possibly poison themselves. How's that uh, it? Okay insurance are the new fucking mafia yeah right you can't bloody do anything without getting permission from the don it's ridiculous so i ran my school in finland for 16 years with no insurance whatsoever Mm -hmm. right because i asked around at the very beginning uh, fellow martial arts instructors who had their own schools and whatnot and they were like well we don't have any juries in finland so if someone gets injured you you just have a judge Mm -hmm. you're talking to a judge and if you explain to the judge that you you know accidents happen but you took all these reasonable safety precautions but this accident happened the judge is going to look at the person and say you got hit on the head with a sword doing doing sword fighting and you're complaining to me why yeah (laughs) right it's so i was actually advised by people who know about these things to not bother with insurance because it was a waste of time and money um but here you can't leave the house without getting 27 different kinds of insurance Mm mm-hmm Right, and as we saw on that very excellent bronze casting workshop, right, we were we were handling molten bronze, okay, all very safe and very sensibly done, and blah blah blah, right. But if I wanted to drill holes in 
the handle bit to put the handle on. I wouldn't be allowed to use your pillar drill because I might injure myself. Mm -hmm. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. This, this country is insane. America isn't much better, but um, yeah, this country it, is mad. It is, it is mad, and it's, it, it's the legal requirement to have insurance for so many things and it's like yeah, right. they're, they're making a huge amount of money out of this because yeah it's we can't it's do behavior. anything else yeah also it's, it's honestly it's one of the reasons why i haven't started anything formally here myself mm -hmm. because the kind of training i want to do i do not ever want to have to check an insurance document to see whether we're covered to do this particular thing yeah it's like that's just not how good work gets done you have to be free to experiment and fiddle about with stuff and do things which, you know, aren't aren't on this particular list of permitted activities. Yeah, yeah. totally. This place is a madhouse. Um, oh, indeed. And uh, before we finish, mm -hmm. I forgot to ask Roland's question. Oh yes. <laughs> right. So so let's just do a quick. I, I'm not going to edit this back in because you know this is this is not one of these highly polished edited shows so we're just gonna we've got to the end but now we're gonna go back to the middle just yeah. so we can do that okay my friend Roland Varchika massively into living history experimental archaeology or whatever and he <clears throat> he has a theory about sword hilts that mm -hmm. if you look at historical examples sword hilts are usually not perfectly straight so the pommel, if you've got like a big disc pommel, for instance, it's not normally perfectly lined up with the cross guard. It's normally slightly at an angle. And that angle is usually makes it more comfortable for a right-hander to hold it. But sometimes it's twisted the other way. It makes it more comfortable for a left-hander to hold it. Mm -hmm. Right? Which is, it's one of those theories where it's a reasonable explanation for the available evidence, but there ain't enough evidence to state conclusively that this is the case yep. so his question is basically in bronze age swords do you see asymmetries in the hilt that make the hilt fit a right-handed or left-handed person better so with the kinds of swords that we looked at at the at the workshop they were they were flat cast mm -hmm. um and as said before we've got our two handle scales riveted together and then the pommel fits on the end and the pommels are always uh, symmetrical round pommels mm -hmm. so from an asymmetry side that would be quite hard to spot if those handle components the furniture actually survive which they very, very, very rarely do. We've got a very small handful of bits of Bronze Age sword hand handle furniture that survives. Um, so we have a very poor data set. What you could look for is potentially where the bronze handle through to where the pommel will be may, be, may have been slightly twisted. I'm thinking a twist in the tang itself. Yeah, yeah. The, we don't see that. You don't see that? No. No. Okay. Not consistent. Can I speculate why? Um, I would imagine this come, potentially comes down to grip um, or how, because if, if you've got a big rounded pommel, if the handle is slightly twisted, it's not going to make a great deal of difference. If it, Instead of it being, as you yeah. said, like a disc pommel, the, uh, clearly that makes a massive difference. Um, and some fantastic research that was done into looking at uh, some different Bronze Age uh, weaponry, and particularly for the handle grip for swords, tested a, a hammer grip, saber grip, thumb grip, um, and mm -hmm. they found that you know Bronze Age swords could be used very effectively with pros and cons for various grips. Sure. Um, 
And I mean, it's a tool. You, you yeah, hold it the way you need to hold it to do exactly what you're about to do. Yeah, and they, they fairly confidently um, concluded that you know it could be a ba- the case that you know uh, the fighter had a personal preference for grip, or that fighters changed grip. Um, but of course, I, it did. Yeah, There's, but I mean that's 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 a foregone conclusion. I mean, you don't ever see any artisan holding a tool and it's always held in exactly yeah. the same grip all the time. It just yeah. doesn't happen. I mean, it's, it's a very logical conclusion. Again, it's just the, we, we have to sit on the fence with prehistoric yeah. archaeology. <laughs> um, but we do see evidence, uh, particularly with swords. And I guess it's something we didn't really look at so much is because with a lot of, and do correct me if I'm wrong, but for a lot of iron and steel swords, they generally have um, a, a fair amount of longevity. It's something that can be passed on, as it were. Yeah, or generally speaking. Yeah, ger- unless it has like really severe, severe, severe damage but we do see we do see swords that have broken in the blade and been forged welded back together and then gone back out again yeah to be reused so um, it, so they can and we be, see and we see older blades on newer hilts for example and so there's there's yeah and yeah hundreds thousands and thousands of these swords survive hundreds and hundreds of years so yeah so you have a difference with bronze swords in that they clearly don't seem to last when they're being used in any kind of engagement um, and they're being recycled frequently and that's one advantage you have with bronze and bronze uh, swords that are cast is that if they've become bent buckled or they've become too heavily notched or even fall out of fashion you can get them hot break them up into sections pop them back in the crucible pot and pour them out again and it's recycled simple which also may be why the pommel was just friction fit on because if you're only going to use it once or twice right you then mm. you then knock your hilt furniture off melt it maybe add a little bit of bronze because there's always a bit gets lost mm-hmm. get your new sword out that's the same shape as the old sword slap the old handle back on it and off you go it's very possible yeah it's then these are not objects that if if they were used so there's no way that they'd be passed on as oh this is your grandfather's sword that was used at the battle yeah. of so and so and their great grandfather used it as the battle of so so because they just did not last that long and and actually um th- there's reasonably clear evidence that people were fighting in a way where they were very aware of the limitations of how long these swords were were going to last so they were actively okay. Um, avoiding blade con- contact so there's quite a lot of yeah. um, contact that would come in from contact with a shield that might leave a u-shaped profile um, but s- less contact uh, sort of v-shaped blade on blade um, okay. but you avoid that with steel swords too yeah of course yeah i, I mean um, i'd imagine with any bladed tool you would try yeah. and avoid heavy damage but at least with a steel sword it's going to flex back, which should do. Whereas with a bronze yeah, it's, it sword, will take it's more. not. It's <laughs> yeah, going to it's, stay bent. Yeah. So yeah, a steel sword will take more abuse, but then the edge is quite brittle. The edge is reasonably brittle, yeah. Um, so it, it won't be able to stand up to anywhere near the same kind of damage that you get with, um, or could could uh, stand up to with iron or steel swords. Um, and for the amount of uh, joules of force that they're using, they're very conservative. Um, so How do we know that? Well, for comparing the damage. So for um, prehistoric swords um, that have notch 
depths. Mm -hmm. um, we know that we've got our data set of this is what we're going to try and replicate. How much force will it be required to create a notch of that like depth that. in replicas? And that, that's, that's it. Uh, it, okay. it will give you a rough sort of this is how much force is, be, is being applied. And they range sort of around... You know, around uh, 11, 15 joules, which isn't, you know, there's a medium, medium strike, no, nothing really heavy. Um, whereas actually what was being found was that um, to actually do heavy penetration um, strikes, you needed well in excess of 20 or 25 joules. So these are very light contact uh, hits. So, so basically they're using them um, for slicing and stabbing, they're not using them for hacking. Yeah, not not using them for hacking. I guess un unless you get that real, unless you um, really need it. Yeah, yeah, or you get that opportunity. Um, and th there's quite clear evidence that they're using. Is it Versetzen? <laughs> Versetzen. Yeah, Versetzen. setting aside. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, In they're the German use, stuff. Yeah, um, they're, they're using um, methods that would be very very familiar in modern fencing. Um, to, to take an opportunity and, and turn it back um, in, in even uh, bronze swords. And it seems to be an awful lot on the flats of the blades. They're, they're intentionally preserving the cutting edge and yeah. using the sword <clears throat> yeah, in a way. My feeling is they're mostly using the weapon with the thumb on the flat, hmm. which allows you to kind of slap incoming strikes away. And when you have such a thick blade... And it isn't wobbly like a steel sword is. Most steel swords, they're very. If you slap the flat of the blade, the whole sword wobbles. Mm -hmm. But the bronze sword is shorter and thicker and stiffer, yeah. so it's behaving more like a stick mm -hmm. in that sense. So you you could you can plausibly use it to to beat incoming weapons away with the flat and then return with a slice or a thrust. Mm -hmm. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So for where where they are being used by very experienced fighters they are using them effectively and using them to oh, sure. the you know understandably using them to the characteristics and traits of the material that they have in front of them so, so that shows that they're using a lot of swords to get to that level <laughs> of skill sure although they probably did a lot of their their practice with wooden weapons i would guess yeah and we do have a wooden sword from orkney as well from the really? age we do yeah from tank we have a bronze age wooden sword Mm -hmm. Maybe a toy, or it may be a practice, uh, practice waste. Where is it held? National Museum Scotland, I think. Okay. Could you could you find it and send like pictures? I can. Yeah, stuff? yeah. And then we'll we'll stick that in the show notes because, um, like, as practicing historical martial artists, the thing that we are most lacking is practice weapons from periods, right? Until the 18th century. We just don't find much in the way of practice rapiers, practice longswords. I mean, they do exist, yeah. and we, there are a few, and we have illustrations of them, and we have some examples. But compared to the, the real thing, they are rarer than hen's teeth. Yeah, I bet. Um, but a wooden sword, I mean, the thing is, in a, in a warrior culture, when a kid is playing with a wooden sword, they are practicing with the proper probably with the proper training weapon that the professionals are using, right? That the grown-ups are using. Because you can get a kid, you know, kids can fight with wooden swords and it's reasonably safe. It's And it's the same tool. Sorry, I just was gesticulating and hit my microphone stand. Um, and it's the same, it's, it is the exact same tool that the grown-ups will be using, only the grown-up one might be a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, so 
there isn't even necessarily a distinction between a play sword and a practice sword in this context. No, not at all. Uh -huh. And in interestingly, the tank and S sword does look clearly as if it is following the same Ewart Park style of the sword that you made. A leaf lady beautiful. Yeah, exactly, with the yeah. pommel as one piece of wood. And there were suggestions it may have been a casting template, but it's not um, accurate enough for the casting, but it's more okay. than accurate enough for a practice sword. Yeah, and you'd, you'd want a different... I mean, if it's a practice sword, you'd want much thicker edges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most definitely. Um, it has. Well, definitely not a casting no. template then. No. Ha. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I did have one question. How expensive is a, a bronze sword is basically a disposable item or a recyclable item, right? Um, how expensive do you think it was sort of in this period? Like, was it a massively yeah. aspirational Ferrari type thing or was it more like, I don't know, a Ford? Yeah, that, that is a good question. And uh, understandably, at the start, when we get the first swords coming in and metal is still valuable, that, yeah, it is, you know, the real showpiece. And you might know of someone that owns one, but as bronze and metal and the understanding of how to make swords becomes more widely accessible, but they become um, better quality, they become larger, they become heavier, more metal is involved, they become more, more ornate, but they also become more numerous and more accessible. Um, so to own a sword, even by the end of the Bronze Age, a, a reasonable quality would still be like owning the equivalent of a, a fairly decent sports car. Not a supercar, okay. but fairly decent sports car. Okay. Um, and so do you think that they were, they would, they would have their sword and then they, when it was, when it needed remaking, they would just take it back to the foundry yeah. and they maybe exchange this much weight of old bronze sword for this for a fresh one yeah. <laughs> for a fresh one and how much of the how much of the cost do you think is in the material or in the labor in the labor definitely because once you've got the the bronze you're only going to lose a relatively limited amount of it and by the end of the bronze so there's a huge amount of bronze in circulation anyway Okay. So that that's where the cost declines, whereas at the early Bronze Age, there was far less in bronze in circulation. Okay. It's nice to think of the craftspeople being paid properly. Yeah. <laughs> to bring it back to where we started this yeah, year, exactly. how do you make a living doing this? Yeah, but we know, <laughs> really? we unfortunately know so little about the Bronze Age craftsperson. They leave almost nothing archaeologically. They leave many thousands of examples of their products, but yeah. in terms of them, the grave of a craftsperson or their actual working space, we have almost nothing. And well, do you think they were specialists? Yes, most mm. definitely I mean, by this time. Yeah, you, you have to go right back to the time of uh, hunter-gatherers to find total generalists. Even by the Neolithic, they were specialists. Interesting. Okay. Well, okay, I've, I've kept you for a very long time. I think we'd better wind this up um, or we're going to end up still be talking here two hours later. Um, so thank you so much for joining That's me right. today james it's Not been lovely to see you yeah likewise thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation with james as how could you not have done you can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast where you'll find transcriptions photos videos and links for this episode and yes it includes photos of my lovely bronze swords although i haven't actually polished sharpened and hilted them yet 
While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordschool.shop to get from your head to their hands how to write, publish and market training manuals for historical martial artists. You definitely want a copy of that book. Yes, you do. Now, I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit a long time ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And of course, in case it isn't obvious, Patrons are entirely welcome to pitch themselves to come on the show, and I will certainly give them a preferential slot. So, you know, if I can say yes, I will say yes, because they're my patrons, right? I would also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next time when I'll be talking to Eleanor Wilkinson Keyes, who is Assistant Curator of Arms and Armour at the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds. She has an MA in Medieval Studies from the University of Leeds and works with the European Armour and Edge Weapons Collections and the Asian and African Collection with Natasha Bennett, who you may recall from episode 82 of the show. And yes, she does have a job that many, many, many listeners to this show would love to have. So listen in and you'll find out what it's all about. You don't want to miss that, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, if you have an extra minute, please do leave a review. But most importantly, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and I will see you soon.